good idea. Zach had a nice setup here. I'm going to ruin it. There we go. All right. Oh, thanks, Ryan. Good evening, everyone. Oh, got a lot of response. We should be outside. That's great. Well, tonight we are in Daniel again, as you may have assumed from the reading. And here we are. All right. I'm going to lose my bookmarks. If so, I'll just have to get them after. They're very special. My girls made them for me, so I have to keep them in my Bible. You know how it goes. Maybe don't. Whatever. All right. Daniel 7. Hello. Isn't it nice to be outside and for it not to be 100 degrees? This is great. This is good. I'm, I'm actually really excited. I like when we are outside. Very thankful for our space and very thankful we have a space to go outside as well. And uh, setup was, was great. How's the sound tonight? It's pretty good. Tonight we're in Daniel 7. Hopefully that's been enough time for you to have turned there if you weren't there before. I hope you do have your Bible since we aren't projecting anything tonight. So you can pull out your digital Bibles if you want. Um, but we are going to be looking around at a couple places. And I, I would really like to direct you to, to really see uh, some of the things we're going to look at in, actually in the Scripture. And, and partly for this reason. Um, as we, we were talking about last week, prophecy is complex. It's not easy to go through, right? Um, it's not straightforward. It is, however, rewarding when you can start to see pieces fit together and see how the whole thing might fit in a thematic way. So last time when we were together, we did talk about how prophecy itself is not as much thus saith the Lord and here's a fulfillment, right? Sometimes it's like that, but it's not always like that. And what we're really looking for are a few different things, right? We're looking for uh, theme. We're looking for uh, repetition. We're looking for um, symbols. We're looking for patterns. And if you can pick up on those and hang on to them, it makes it easier to then delve into prophecy, apocalyptic literature, and other places, right? Okay. Tonight, we're going to dive a little bit deeper, not too much deeper, because uh, we only have, you know, 45 minutes, 40 minutes uh, to go through this. So tonight, our goal is to, again, we're going to recognize some themes, recognize symbols, and start to put a few pieces together. We still have a few chapters left in Daniel, and we're going to be returning back to some of these things a few more times. And so we'll have more chances to put some of these pieces together as we look at some other parts of Scripture. But tonight, that's going to be our, our, our point. We're not, we're not going to get really lost in the details. Um, if someone starts falling asleep, just let me know. I'll, I'll start moving a little quicker. Um, but we've already done a reading in Daniel 7. We aren't going to read through that whole block there again. But I did want to ask this question. How many of you did your homework? Okay, I see someone said, put them up, put them up proudly. Yes, let's see that. Okay. What was the homework? 
Ah, Revelation 13 and 14. Yes. And somebody said, yes. Oh, that's right. That's right. I was supposed to do that, but you didn't. And it's okay. We're going to look at it tonight. And the reason why I wanted you to read through it is then we're not going to really dive all that deep into it. We're going to hit a few things, but I wanted you to recognize some of the themes there. But that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with that when we get there. What are some of the things that you all recognized in Revelation 13 and 14? What are some of the things that popped out to you? What are some things that maybe you hadn't read before? What are some things that you, or really what it is, is what do you remember from Revelation 13 and 14? Anything? A lion, a bear, and a leopard. We almost have a movie there. But a lion, a bear, and a leopard were mentioned. Yes. And, that, and, and that's significant because we saw it in Daniel 7. Right. So some repeating things. Right. What else? What else we got? That was it? Anything? Horns. The horns show up again. They are very important, actually. So we see some of those horns. What else? A beast, a beast, and more beasts, and a dragon. Yes. Yes, and that's actually really important. It's important to recognize that we're seeing some of those themes repeat, right? So when we're going to Daniel and then we go back to Revelation, some of those things should line up. And they, guess what? They do. What else? Anything else? That was it. Nothing else. I was talking with someone before, and they mentioned... The mark of the beast. Anybody see that was in there? Nobody wanted to say it, though. Everybody remembers it when I say it, but nobody wanted to say it. Um, yeah, we're, we won't have time to, to really delve into that a whole lot, but that's there in that portion. What else? Anything else? Anything interesting? Smoke of torment. Yes, that's probably a metal band. And... Um, <laughs> You're right. It is. It does mention some of those things. Yes. Not the, not the most like uplifting of chapter, at least chapter 13, right? Chapter 14 gets better, but anything else? Yeah. The lamb and the 144,000. Again, another big concept idea in Revelation, one that's discussed a lot, the 144,000, we won't delve into really. But the lamb, so again, a repeated symbol, right? So without even doing any additional research or anything else, who's the lamb? It's Jesus, right? But it's interesting because we have some other character that also looks like a lamb. So Bennett, a repeating symbol, but because you can recognize the symbol, you can see there's something wrong here, right? Yeah, very important. All right. Hopefully one of the things you saw, even if you don't remember any of the real specifics, was there were some repeating themes and symbols that showed up from Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 and 14, right? You saw some of those things. And that's important because um, prophecy isn't all, it's not in a vacuum, right? One of the things we're going to see tonight is the themes and the symbols, they're, they're important and they're consistent. They may not be exactly the same, but they're consistent. And we're going to take a look at that here in just a moment. Nice and breezy. Here we go. This will be fun. Um, all right, so going back to Daniel 7. Let's look at Daniel 7 here. We are focusing on the last half of 
the chapter, or the, or the second part, I should say, with the interpretation. And so just to pick up on a couple of things, let's start in verse 15. Let's look at a, a few of these verses here. Verse 15 says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I'll just pause that for a second. Even though it's Daniel, and he has seen a lot of things, these things disturbed him. Right? One of the things I want to point out as well, if we go back to the beginning of the chapter, um, chapter 7, verse 1, he says, um, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream, visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote them down. Uh, he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now, I think that's kind of important because Daniel's not exhaustive in the interpretation. He's summing it up. Which could possibly mean, we look at verse 15, he says that he was basically saying that he was very disturbed. He's anxious. He may have left out some of the most disturbing things, possibly, and really kind of summed it up for us. And so, uh, you know, Daniel most likely included everything that was the most important thing. We actually see this in his interaction with the, uh, uh, with the angelic presence there in just a second. Um, verse 16, it's interesting. He says, I approached... Uh, one of those who stood there, we don't, we're, we're never told that anything is standing there. Uh, but by him saying uh, he approached someone standing there, this is very similar to what John does in Revelation. So he sees a vision, then he goes and he asks an angel a question. And so probably the same thing, even though Daniel didn't set that up, oh, I was here and I saw these things here and I was interacting. Again, he's summed it up for us. But here he says that he went and approached one of those who stood there, and he asked the truth concerning all of this. So, so he told me the, the uh, I'm sorry, he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. What I really wanted to read here is verses 17 and 18. If you don't get anything else, this here is the true summation of this, and it's really the important thing for us to understand. These four great beasts are four kings that will arise out of the earth. Verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Emphasis on forever. Stated twice. Repeated things are important. The point of this is that the saints will inherit the kingdom. That is the main point. The main point's not actually the beasts. It's a part of it. But the actual big culmination, the real thing for us to concentrate on is the fact that the saints will actually possess the kingdom. It will be given to them. That's actually the, the, the culmination and the climax. And if, you, if you're going through this chapter and you're hearing it taught or you're reading a book and it does not make that the main point, I'm not saying you throw out the book. What I'm saying is you need to remind yourself if they don't. Because, yes, it's, it's far more interesting to delve into some of the other details. But if you don't pick up that main point, we're forgetting the end. Who forgets the end of the story? That's sort of the main point right? That is really the driver for this. And we're, we're definitely going to hit that again before uh, we're completing our time here today in here. But uh, in Daniel 7, uh, in the second half here, verse 19 says that I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. So here's kind of the point. There's a lot of things to talk about the beast and we're actually going to go and talk about the other beasts here. Daniel seems kind of not concerned with the first three beasts. Even though these, those are super weird, um, he is most concerned with the fourth. And you'll notice he doesn't even ask about the other three. 
which might be interesting. We'll, we'll go back to it here in a second because I'm sure you have wondered about the other three. So we'll talk about that. But as for Daniel, he, he's there. He's standing with the angel. And I don't know if there's like, if he's got a time limit. He's like, okay, we'll just skip to the fourth one because that's the most interesting one. Uh, but let's look at those other beasts really quick. So looking at the other beasts, we've got three. It's not right to call them normal beasts. But the fourth one seems to be really weird, right? So we've got three semi-weird beasts, and the fourth that's terrifying and crazy and the beastly kind of beast. First beast, anyone remember? What is it, the first beast? Lion, but what about just a lion? Oh, it's got wings. All right. So um, well, well, let's do all three, and then we'll go back through. What's the second beast? Remember? A bear? A normal bear? It was a lopsided bear, which is weird. And he had what? He's got three ribs. How many of you had ribs this weekend? <laughs> Different ribs. I saw that hand. Different ribs. But so imagine you see the beast and it's just got three, three ribs coming out of his mouth. That's weird. Not normal. And what about the third beast? What is that third beast? Scott, am I going to have to have you come back up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Close in prayer. Done. Third beast. What's the third beast? Leopard. And what's just normal leopard or? Wings. And four heads. Oh, yeah. Four heads and wings. Yes. And what about the fourth beast? How is it described? Just a terrifying Beast, and as we just read, it was terrifying. It was ferocious. It was stamping. It's uh, it's it's a strong beast. Yeah. Okay. First beast. The so one of the things we talked about last week is we did kind of compare it back with the statue and the other kingdoms, right? So a lot of the commentaries you look at, and a lot of the a lot of teachers that will look at this, they'll what they'll do is they'll take the statue and kind of slide those over and say they correspond to these beasts, and it's not untrue. If you look at these, they do correspond, right? So we look at the first beast as a lion with wings. What's the, uh, what's the gold in the statue? You remember? Scott, what is it? <laughs> Jesus. The gold in the statue is supposed to be Babylon uh, with Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. So it specifically says this is you, Nebuchadnezzar, right? And we also talked about how this can represent kings and kingdoms, right? So you've got this beast here. It's the lion uh, with wings. And here's the, here's the weird thing about that. It's not, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I think some of the reasons people think that is, is wrong. They'll say, oh, clearly this is this because we have that Babylonian gate and uh, Babylon is associated with a lion. That's actually not true. Babylon's not associated with a lion. Babylon's associated more so with winged uh, bulls and something else. The gate that we look at there is the Ishtar gate. That actually points to a completely different god. It's just in honor of Ishtar. The lion is, the winged lion is uh, supposed to be for Ishtar. So now we're stuck. We're not, actually. Because um, here's actually the more important point. And the reason why it's important to point this out, this is not a symbol that the world or history recognizes for Babylon specifically. It is, however, a picture that scripture 
does point to Babylon. So there's a, a few verses in the Old Testament that indicate that Nebuchadnezzar or the Chaldeans coming in, they are connected with lions. And oftentimes the conquering group is called a lion. We also have a problem if we just take the lion specifically and just attribute it to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Can you think of a reason why? Who else is associated with being a lion? Oh, Jesus. See, you were right, Scott. You were right. It is Jesus. Nailed it. The, the point is, is that Scripture does connect that there. The reason that's important, when you're looking at symbols in Scripture, the symbols that are attributed are not often attributed by the world or by history. They're attributed to them by God or the prophet by the Holy Spirit, that's attributed to them as a descriptor. And that's important because uh, we can spend a lot of time going a lot of different places trying to make something fit instead of just recognizing that this is what God is using to symbolize that for us. So instead of looking this at this as, as, as a history lesson, instead, what are the characteristics of a lion? Why do you think it's also associated with Jesus in certain places? What is it about a lion? Anybody? King of Beasts. What else? Has anyone ever seen a lion? Like in person? Close up? Are they cuddly? You want to hop in there? and No, they're not. They're not cuddly. They're actually kind of scary. You ever heard a lion roar like in your presence? It's absolutely terrifying. You can feel it like all through your body. It is, it is a crazy thing. But lions are ferocious. That's more the point. What about wings? What are wings associated with? <laughs> Jesus. What are wings associated with normally? Birds flying. Yes. Yeah, so something that flies, does it fly slow? Have you ever seen something fly like super slow? They're usually at a certain pace. Uh, the, we have this rep actually represented in two different beasts. We have the lion and we also have the leopard. The wings do signify speed, at least in these in this prophetic thing. That is something that's applied to them. And we'll see that actually in the next chapter as well. It's something that's consistent that we see there. So the lion is one that has ferocious nature and speed, right? So that is a descriptor for, uh, could be a descriptor for Babylon and is a descriptor for Babylon, but also could be a descriptor for another kingdom that is also ferocious and is fast. We have to kind of leave that open a little bit. What about the second beast? It's a, it's a bear. This is where that all breaks down because there's nowhere where Medo-Persia is connected with a bear. There's no like national symbol for Medo-Persia, but scripture might apply it that way because of how it works out in history. But what is a bear? Like, what are some characteristics of bear? Fuzzy? Okay. Got that. What else? Big? We have a saying. You don't want to poke the bear. Why? You poke the bear, what's going to happen? Follow you home. Follow you home. <laughs> Say, why are you poking me? There, you don't want to poke the bear. It basically, if it's provoked, it's over, right? Okay. Think of that as a, a national characteristic for a kingdom. Okay. This is possibly connecting with Medo-Persia, but it doesn't have to exclusively be Medo-Persia. Do you get what I'm saying? This can be applied in a different way too. What about the third beast? Leopard. What about a leopard? Fast, agile, it's a 
it's a predator, stealthy maybe. So it's it's basically a really great predator, and it has what? Spots. Yes, it has spots. But <laughs> what else does it have? It's, and this has got wings. So again, speed, right? And and we'll actually see this in chapter eight. I don't want to go too much into chapter eight because we're going to do that later. But chapter eight also has some of these same types of descriptors for a beast. So think more this way. So can it apply to those other kingdoms? Yes, it can. And it does it? It might. Can it also apply to more? Yes, it can. And the reason is this. We get to the fourth. What's this fourth beast? The fourth beast here in Daniel is, what are some of the descriptors? Terrifying, ferocious, uh, it stamps its feet. It's, it's, it, it's, a, it's a scary beast. It's beastly. It is uh, the epitome of beastliness. But you go back to the statue and you've got an issue because, you, yeah, you've got iron legs, but those toes, are those toes just really strong, crushing, descripted? Or is that the description for the toes? No, it's like iron and clay. So now you've got this fun, this fun thing that we've got to deal with. So we've got a pattern of four kingdoms, the fourth one being really, really important. In the line of, of the kingdoms, as we talked about last time, it, it does go to Rome. So then the question is, does this beastly, crazy beast correspond to Rome? It can in a certain way, but it seems like there's two different descriptors here. With the statue, it's weak and it's destroyed. But in Daniel 7, it's ferocious and terrifying. And it's actually strongest of all the beasts, not weaker. And in fact, it's, it's then the focus of Daniel after this. So there's something different here. With the statue, what happened to the statue? Do you remember? Hopefully you do. What was it, Scott? What happened? Yeah. But what, what did it? It was a rock not cut with human hands. We talked about that being, well, who else is described as the rock? Jesus. Jesus is described as the rock. And then that rock, after smashing that, it, it grows. It fills the whole earth, right? And that's what happened with Rome. And we talked about that. With this ferocious beast, we've got something else going on. Something altogether. So, and Daniel's most concerned with the fourth beast. So I think we should spend some time there. So we're going to look at some of the features here. But in looking at the beast in Revelation, I'm sorry, in Daniel 7, we're going to look at Revelation 13 as well, because all of a sudden now we've got something else corresponding. In Revelation 13, does it describe three other beasts before it? That's an easy one. No. Everybody's making sure, right? You didn't read chapter 12, so I mean, you know, maybe. Um, but in Revelation 13, it just says, and then this beast shows up, and it describes this beast. So let's compare the fourth beast with, in Daniel with this other beast here. And the reason we're going to do that is we're going to see some correspondence with that. Daniel, dis, or Daniel is, is told that this beast is um, a kingdom that will arise that will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth, trample it down, break it into pieces. This is a ferocious, ferocious beast. We look in Revelation 13... And you have some of the same descriptors. Revelation 13, though, you have a couple of other descriptions about this massive beast that shows up. 
And some of those have to do with all those other beasts. It's described as having teeth of iron. It's described as having, uh, what else? So in here, in, Re in Daniel 7, it says that it has uh, teeth of iron, claws of bronze, which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left. When you get to Revelation, it doesn't describe them as metals. It actually describes them as these other beast type of things here. So verse 2 in Revelation 7 says, The beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like bear's feet, and it had a mouth that was like a lion's mouth. One last descriptor that's not in Daniel 7, it says that a dragon gave it power. Anytime you add a dragon, it gets exciting, right? So you have this descriptor. It's a similar beast, but it's described in a little bit of a different way here. In Revelation, it seems like it's a combination of all those other beasts. You have the bear, the leopard, and the lion there as well. So you have this interesting thing. In Daniel, it seems like it's four separate beasts, but in Revelation, it seems like they're all kind of combined, at least in its descriptor. With the beast in Daniel 7, how many heads does that beast have? Daniel 7. It has one head and how many horns, Matt? Ten horns. You go to Revelation, this beast is described as having how many heads? Seven heads, but how many horns? Ten horns. Except now it says all those horns have crowns. It's the same symbols. It's the same ideas. And so you're talking about a similar beast, same beast. Now, there's one other descriptor that's really important. It talks about, in Daniel 7, there's something that grows up. What grows up? Another horn. And that horn is a horn that speaks blasphemous things. But it also describes that it does what? One of the, I think, the most important things, there's several things it talks about this little horn doing, but one of the things I think is most important, because it lines up directly with Revelation 13, is it says that this little horn wages war on who? Wages war on the saints. In Revelation 13, this beast, this head that has the ten horns, uh, same descriptors, it says that, though, it says that there's uh, one of these horns that has a mouth, and it speaks blasphemous things. In fact, Speaking blasphemous things shows up five, six, seven different times in description of, of this horn or in uh, Revelation talks about this, this other head. And what does that head do? What does that mouth do? It also wages war on the saints. And I think that's important. With the statue, the kingdom of God came, smashed into the feet, and then what happened to the statue? blew away. However, we get to Revelation 13. And instead, this beast wages war on the saints. So rather than being conquered by the kingdom of God, it sets out to actually war against the saints. So, to summarize, what it seems like is the statue is describing these world empires leading up to this last empire, that empire is smashed by the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God grows. What we see with the beasts, it could also be describing that, but also could be describing 
in the end, these beasts, these kingdoms rise up. And instead of being smashed, they're not going to suffer that again. So right off the bat, what do they do? Wages war against the saints. So instead of being smashed by the kingdom, they now go to war with the kingdom, if you want to put it that way. They go to war with the church. They go to war with the people of God. They go to war with those who are aligned with Yahweh because they won't be smashed again. It's actually very similar to what happened at the Tower of Babel. God, God actually describes the Tower of Babel in a very interesting way. They're building this tower and it's the Tower of Defiance. It's, it's utter rebellion. They don't want to be ruled by Yahweh. And says, let's go down and take a look at this thing. And they go down and look. And Yahweh says, you know, if they continue this way, nothing will be impossible to them. And so you have a dividing of languages. You have a confusing of languages, right? According to family lines. And it would appear that in the description we see with this beast, because it talks about these 10 horns and it talks about them taking over the entire earth. What you have is just simply a return to Babylon, or I should say to the Tower of Babel. And it could be one of those reasons why this last kingdom is described in Revelation as Babylon. Because it's really tying back in to those same things, those same ideas. So even from Daniel's perspective, this fourth beast is really key to understanding some of these things. And some of the symbols that are repeating that we see between them, we see beasts, heads, right, horns. Uh, we see a dragon. Dragon is talked about. We see a lamb. Lamb is discussed and talked about. We also see a couple of other things. So as we go into chapter 14 in Revelation, we see a couple of things that are also connected with this concept and idea of what it will be like in the end. We see a harvest, and we see a wine press. So we see a few other symbols that are tied into Revelation 14 that do key us into this. And this is, this is one of these areas, again, it's difficult to go through here and to really line up. And I don't, have, have any of you during this time in Daniel gone and looked at other commentaries, teachings on Daniel or Revelation? I know there's a lot of other churches doing Revelation now as well. I think last week I said only like 4% of the church is really studying through prophecy. And then I start looking around. It's like, oh, everybody's doing it now. So I guess it's like, you know, I don't know. Maybe the Revelation commentary is on sale. I don't know. So they're like, let's do it. But there's a lot of people who are talking about it now. And so as we go through some of these things, we start to look and see what is really the point of it all? Is it to fill out a big old chart? Is the point to argue the details? And I'll tell you what, the details are fun for me. So I, maybe you're seeing me struggle a little bit. Like I want to get into some of the details. I think it's fun. Very, I guess, twisted sense of fun. But the, the idea of studying these deep things is very interesting to me. I, I would love, if, if anyone would like to sit down and really talk through some of these, I love to talk through this stuff. I find it really interesting. Maybe that's you too. Not you too, but you as well. The, this idea of the end, we've made it novelty. We've made it, we, we've carved it out 
So now there's lots of churches that are talking about it. We're going through Daniel. Maybe you're reading through some other things. But we've made it novelty. We've made it like, ooh, we're going through Revelation. We're talking about end time things. That's never how it was supposed to be. This was deeper insight that Daniel got to be added to the rest of the insight that they had through the Old Testament to line some other things up. And then we have some other prophets filling in some other things after this. Zechariah being a, a really big one, adding a lot of very interesting things to this idea of prophecy, this idea of future things. But the reason I bring it up is we sometimes take this as being a novel thing. And maybe some of you are in that, in that position where you're like, I can't wait till we're done with Daniel, so go back to normal things. Maybe that's, maybe that's you. And I hope, that, I hope that's not the case because there's so many wonderful things to draw out of here. Now, the, the point of this passage is not to be scared of beasts that are coming in the future. That's not the point. The point of this passage is really what is taking place in the second part of Daniel 7. Verse 26, the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away, talking about that beast, to be consumed and destroyed in the end. Verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. And his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. See, there's, there's discussions about the extent of this beast's power. It shows this beast, in Revelation, this head. You know, it talks about this one that pops up supplanting three and, and taking dominion, which might possibly be those other three kingdoms that we talked about. And takes power. And then we've got this character of the little horn. Who is that? I think that's, this is one of those unique things. So what we're seeing is something special happening here that didn't happen the first time with, with Rome. Because I think you have a, another, another character that shows up that is just really terrible, speaking these blasphemous things that allows this Antichrist to ride in on a white horse and to show himself the Savior, to show himself the Messiah, and to really rise to power in a way that is probably unexpected. And all of this is actually part of what Jesus was teaching his disciples. Maybe not in those really specific details, but thematically. We go back to Matthew 24. His disciples say, what is this supposed to be like in the end? And Jesus goes right, right on through in chapter 24 and in 25 talks about what it's going to be like in the end. Many of these themes show up in Matthew 24. These are a part of our gospel. This is part of us understanding gospel living. If we aren't thinking about the end and thinking about it in a hopeful way, we've misunderstood it. If, if we're thinking about the end and we're being scared or we're worried or we're anxious, we have missed the point. The whole point is, is to understand that the kingdom will be given to the saints. That is the most important aspect of this whole thing. It's the culmination of the entire plan of God. But we have to go through the end. 
you have to. The anchors hold. We have to go through that thing which is prophesied, that thing which is discussed. It's promised. And so looking at Matthew 24, go ahead and turn there with me. Last, uh, last week we talked about, we looked at one passage in Matthew 24. We looked at in uh, cha- chapter 24, verse 9. We talked about this tribulation that we would experience. Maybe we'll go ahead and read it again, because this, I think, is perhaps the only theme that people think about when they think of the end, this part. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And I think this is specifically talking about the church. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's repeated over and over in Revelation 2 and 3. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world in the testimony, and as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And I think sometimes we look at that and we get scared. But instead, we, we, it's like we stop, and we don't do the last half. The last part of this is the most exciting part. Let's look at verse 29. Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation. Gotta love that word, Immediately. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will, get, will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the heavens. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign, the Son of Man. And then all tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And we send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. There should be several phrases in what Jesus says here that should take you right back to Daniel. Because they're talking about the same thing. And Jesus isn't telling this to freak out his disciples, to say, you have no idea how crazy it's going to get, guys. It's to understand how all of this is leading to the same culmination, the same thing that God had in his mind when he gave the prophecy in Genesis 3 that the serpent would be crushed and that sin would be dealt with. It's the same story, the same thing. It's just we are a favored generation to be able to hear the details of those things. For us to understand who the Lord is, to understand what that kingdom involves, to understand how those pieces will fit together. And what Jesus calls us, his disciples, to do is to not be deceived. Don't be taken in like everyone else. And I think what's described in Matthew 24 is actually a good chunk of the church will also be deceived. They'll also be led astray by things. We have to keep each other in line. We have to remind each other of the hope that's coming. We have to remind each other of some of these things so that we are not taken by some false prophet, by someone who says it. And and we think, there's no way. I mean... Okay, is it really going to be a crazy beast? Probably not. It's going to be, but but we'll we'll see it. We'll recognize it, right? It'll be pretty plain, you know. Whoever fill in the blank T 
teacher, pastor will, will tell us, we'll, we'll be fine, we'll figure it out. It's not, no big deal. I don't think so. If Jesus says over and over, you've got to be careful. This is going to be, it's going to be deceptive. It's going to be, even the elect can be drawn away. Like we, we, if we think, oh, not us, we're setting ourselves up for disaster. And in the same line, if we think this is all doom and gloom and there's nothing good here, we're also missing the boat. Um, I referenced Tolkien in the last message, and I'll do it again. There's a line that Frodo has, and he says to Gandalf, if you haven't learned, spoilers? Is there spoilers for Tolkien anymore? We're okay, right? It's like, it's, a, it's old. Okay. And he says, I wish the ring never came to me. And Gandalf says, so does everybody who lives in times like these. Nobody, nobody wants to live at that time. Everybody wants to die peacefully with their family around them, quietly in their sleep. I don't know why your family is watching you sleep, but that's, that's how we want the end to be, right? After we've had all the experiences, we've finished the bucket list and kicked it off someplace, and then we just have a nice nap, and then we're in heaven. That's how, that's how I think we, we want it to be. We don't always get to choose that. Some of us, some of us have been born at a very pivotal time to be very pivotal people in God's plan to do amazing things. You go through some, some of the scripture that talks about some of the people that are most impactful on probably our faith or the faith of others, and they were, they were sleeping on the ground. They, they were sleeping in caves. They were hungry. They were put in prison. Not cool things happened, and yet we think back on them and think, wow, those were, those were pillars pillars of faith for not just their generation, but for us. And to think, I don't want to live through something terrible. I don't want the ring to come to me. That's what everybody thinks when the time comes. It would rather not be us. But we don't get to choose that. We're here. And if we're here, whatever time we're born, whatever time we live, we're here to remember these deep things of God and to pass them on to the next generation. So you can think, why, why do we have to think through this stuff and learn about a crazy beast and all this kind of stuff? Why do we have to do that? Is it going to be us? Do we know it's going to be us? It might not be you, but you need to understand it so you can pass it informa- information on to the next generation because it might be them and they need to do the same for them. And that's how it's been now for generations, right? Like, Jesus, what are you waiting for? Why are you, why are you waiting so long? Well, we also get that answer in Revelation as well. He says we're, he's waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles. He's waiting for all of us. You, you realize that if he came 500 years ago, that would not include us, right? And so he's waiting. He's waiting before his whole family is, is complete and there and, and a part of things. And you know what that might mean? That might mean that for us, we might be a part of that generation that has to experience all the craziness, all the nuttiness, all the insanity, all the chaos. But we can't be defeated. It's all part of a plan. How can we be defeated? Very first sermon ever preached in Acts. Peter says, Hey, it's the last days. It's in his introduction. He says, In the last days, these things are all going to happen. So even at the time of Peter, 
He says, we're in the last days. Why are we in the last days? Oh yeah, because now we know about the resurrection. Now it's done. Now we're just waiting. And while we wait, we live. And while we live, we do what the exiles did in Daniel. We plant gardens, we establish homes, we, we minister, we, have, we raise families, right? And if you don't have your own kids, you're an auntie or an uncle to other ones in the church. We need aunties and uncles. Everybody who has parents or everybody whose parents here, don't we need aunties and uncles? Don't we need grandmas and grandpas? Don't we need everyone in the church to be a family together? We all do. We need that for such a time as this. And I think we all pray maybe for such a time as that later. Matthew 24 talks about the coming kingdom. Matthew 25, there are two parables that are taught where Jesus says, this is how you should live. Matthew 25, we have the parable of the ten virgins. Five were ready, five were waiting and watching, five weren't. Five were, fell asleep and were surprised and had no light. The other five were ready and they lit their lamps and went on to the wedding. It's this idea of being prepared, the idea of preparation. And then you have the parable of the talents. Or you have a master who gives money for his servants to invest. And some of them take him seriously and there's one who does not. The Lord is concerned with how we should live. In fact, so concerned with how we should live, he shares with us what the end's going to be like so we know how to live. The gospel only makes sense. The reality of the gospel only makes sense in the context of the return of the king. It is the gospel driver. There is no reason for us to live, to speak, to teach, to serve, unless this thing is for real. It is the gospel driver. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to finish with this. I've already referenced Peter once. 1 Peter chapter 4. This is one of my, 1 Peter is one of my favorite books. I know you're not supposed to have a favorite book. People say that, you know, the other books get jealous. But one of my favorite books, 1 Peter chapter 4. And I've said this so many times before, and we've referenced this passage. If you ever forget what you are supposed to do as part of the church, go back to this passage. Starting in verse 7, this is Peter writing. He says, the end of all things is at hand, or the culmination of all things is at hand. What do you think he's talking about? His letter? Finally going to finish this letter, everybody. No, he's like the end. You all know that the end is coming, right? The end of all things, the end of the age, the return of the king and the return of the kingdom. It's coming. The culmination is on, is, is on its way. Therefore, build a bunker and buy guns and get a whole bunch of beans, right? Is that what it says? Not a bad idea to have some beans. Everybody needs some beans. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, 
you use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That last phrase is a phrase spoken in heaven. At, in the throne room of God. So all of these things that sound like, but that's just normal Christian stuff. It's like, yeah, it's normal Christian stuff. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the whole point. So here's big, scary, end times message. So what do you do? Be hospitable. Pray with each other. Love each other. This is what we're supposed to do. This is supposed to be our takeaway from eschatology. Live this way. Why? Because we take the kingdom of God seriously. I like to put it in a nutshell like this. When the kingdom of God arrives, it's our duty as believers to be living a life as though we are in the kingdom. So when the kingdom arrives, the new regime is in place, the new laws are set down, our life changes as little as possible. We just step into the kingdom and we're just doing what we're supposed to be doing. That's the challenge that we have. That's the challenge we have at home. That's the challenge we have with our neighbors. That's the challenge we have with the church is to lift the kingdom so when the kingdom of God arrives, there's as little change as possible. That's what we're supposed to do. So what do we do with all this beastly stuff? We remember that when that beastly beast arrives, all the Lord does is set up the, the chairs, sets up the thrones, opens the books, and says, all right, once your three and a half years is done, it's done. It's over. You had your chance. And then all of the authority of the kingdom is given over to the saints. And then we just move on with our life. And guess what our life looks like? Well, I like First Peter 4. We're just doing that. It's just, I guess we get horses and vines. There's lots of things we get in heaven, but we just do with all those things. But I really do pray that as we look at some of these really weird and crazy things, and look, we didn't even talk about Russia this whole time. Can you imagine? We talked about all these beasts, and we talked about all this stuff, and we didn't even bring up Russia. Can't be right. Because it's not the point. The point is, is that we need to know and understand that the kingdom is coming. We need to take it seriously, and we need to live like we are a part of the kingdom now. That is our objective. No matter, no matter what comes, come what may, that's how we live. Amen? Even if you're not Baptist, you can say amen. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful complexity of your word, but thank you for the simplistic message that we're to take with us, Lord, that you are truly Lord, you are King, and Lord, you are coming. You will return, and you'll return with ten thousands and ten thousands of your saints myriads of angels. Lord, it will be unmistakable that the kingdom has arrived in full power. And Lord, I pray that we would look forward to that day, that we would anticipate your coming as though it is real. And if we live to see those calamities, live to see the chaos, that we will be able to do as you do and to laugh and know that the end is near and that our promises will be fulfilled. Lord, thank you for the night visions of Daniel. And thank you, Lord, that we can look forward to your coming. We pray this, powerful, this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.